Thank you for tuning in with us at Bayou City Fellowship Spring Branch, a community that's radically focused on Jesus. God's plan has always been to unite us with Himself and other believers through His Son. Our new life comes with a calling that urges us to radically love others in new ways. Join us as we go through the book of Ephesians in this sermon series called Unimaginable. Well, uh, it is a privilege to be able to do uh, ministry, to be a pastor and actually get paid to be a pastor. We call this vocational ministry uh, because for our brothers and sisters around the world, uh, the high percentage, probably like 90% of pastors around the world are actually bivocational, which means they work a job Monday through Saturday or Monday through Friday and then pastor at night or in the evenings when they can and preach on Sundays. And so the opportunity to do this is indeed a true grace privilege. Um, my wife, Tara, her pastor growing up, her childhood pastor at Goodwill Missionary Baptist Church in South Austin, he was a mail carrier, so he delivered the mail Monday through Saturday. He would deliver the mail, and on Sundays, he was a pastor of this church. Uh, I have a friend of mine who was, I just talked to him two weeks ago. He was in town for a conference. He was the superintendent, I'm sorry, principal of a high school in Texarkana, and then he's also a pastor as well in Texarkana. He's now pastoring in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Uh, and so there are plenty of, even in America, bivocational pastors, pastors who work full-time, and then pastor as well. Uh, the most unusual one I've ever heard of, and I've heard of a, a bunch of different like bivocational pastors. A friend of mine, he was a police officer for a number of years, and then he just retired, and now he's pastoring full-time. I've heard of firefighters who are pastors as well, and then they put out fires, and they come to church and put out more fires, right? <laughs> but the most unique one I've ever heard about is this. Um, he was a psychiatrist. He's a medical doctor, a psychiatrist, and he was pastoring a very small church in rural Texas. And I knew his wife. Uh, his wife was on staff at a Christian ministry, and she, she said to me, you need to meet my husband. I think you'd get a lot of insight from him. So we sat down for coffee, because I had never sat down with a psychiatrist who's also a pastor. And I asked him this question. I said to him, you know, in your professional practice as a medical doctor and working with Christian counselors and as a psychiatrist, have you ever had a patient come to you who's a believer, a Christian, but has issues in their lives, things are wrestling within their marriage or in their lives, that you can prescribe all the right medicine, that you can send them to all the right counselors, they can memorize all the right Bible verses, they can join the perfect community group, they can go to a perfect church, and yet there's an X factor where you say, I just can't explain why they do what they do. And he says, yes, I have that quite a bit. And I said, would you say that in American Christianity, we like to try to explain everything. Oh, they are doing this because of this issue or their, this counseling or because of this issue they had at work or because they read this Bible verse. We try to explain everything. And we tend to deny often the supernatural. And I said, have you ever had a patient come to you that you suspect there's some demonic activity like the devil has gotten into the mix because you can't explain what's going on. And he says, yes, as a medical doctor, as a psychiatrist, and as a pastor, there are people that I've talked to that I say, you know what, as patients, there's something going on here that I just can't explain in the science books, the textbooks, the medical textbooks. There's something going on here that I just can't explain from a purely medical perspective. And so today, that's what I want to look at in this message from Ephesians chapter 4 is this. I believe 1 John 4.4 4 is absolutely true, that if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
The Holy Spirit indwells you now. Amen? The Holy Spirit lives in you. And 1 John 4, 4 says, greater is he who's inside of you than he who's in the world. Amen? You believe that? So you have been now possessed. The Holy Spirit as a believer, a Christian, that can be demonic. I believe as a believer, a Christian, that can be demonically possessed. But this is what I believe. A believer can be oppressed demonically. And so again, we don't like to talk about this stuff, about the Holy Spirit doing supernatural things, and we don't like to talk about demonic activity because we feel like in American Christianity, everything should be rational. We should be able to explain it all the way. But here's my concern to you as your pastor is that perhaps in your own Christian walk, you may have invited demonic activity into your walk. You may have invited demonic activity into your marriage and into your family. And this demonic activity may even prevent you from having an intimate walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Am I scaring you enough? So we're gonna look at Ephesians chapter four, verses 17 through 32. And we've already looked at this fact that this church in Ephesus, the blueprint for the church is Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, black and white, old and young, all together. And if you know anything about human behavior and human interaction, when you have an eclectic mix of people like that in this body, this family called the church, you're going to have conflict and problems. Amen? You're going to have that. And so this is what um, Paul says in verse 17. So I say this and affirm in the Lord that you are to no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their minds. So here in verse 17, he uses the word Gentiles because the church is comprised of Jew and Gentile, Greek and Roman and Jew. The reason why I believe he doesn't say unbeliever here and he specifically says Gentile is because he's talking to the Gentiles, the non-Jews saying, you remember before you came to faith in Jesus Christ how you lived. So he's pointing out the Gentiles. He says this, he says they were futile in their minds, end of verse 17. And that word futile means without purpose. He says, you Gentiles were without purpose. Why? He digs deeper. Because verse 18, being darkened in their understanding. Your minds were darkened. Why? Because you're excluded from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. So he gives deeper and deeper layers. He says the reason why the Gentiles were purpose, did not have purpose, purposeless, was because they were darkened in their minds, they were excluded from the life of the Lord, they were cut off from the Lord, Romans 6.23, that you were dead because of your sin. He says in verse 19, and they, having become callous, have given themselves up to indecent behavior for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. So here in verse 19, this is what happens. They have been given over to sin. They've been given over and this is a picture of Romans chapter 1. For those of you who know the book of Romans, Romans 1.24, Romans 1.26, and Romans 1.28 talks about God's passive wrath. Because we're in rebellion and we say, God, we choose ourselves and we choose sin over you, God says, okay, you do you then. Hands off, passive wrath. And it says here that the Gentiles were given over. But he says this in verse 20 to us and to the believers here at Ephesus but you did not learn Christ in this way. Underline Christ. So he's saying all this stuff in the darkness of our minds and our ignorance and our purposelessness. And now he doesn't say this. He doesn't say, now learn this set of rules and teachings. He doesn't say, now have purpose by focusing on your purpose. He doesn't say that. Now what he says is, learn Christ. He points the focus back on them and for us 
back to Jesus Christ. He says in verse one, if indeed you've heard him. He doesn't say it, referring to the law or to the scriptures. He says, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. So he says, go back to this foundational truth. And the truth is not a set of facts. The truth is a person, Jesus Christ. So he's contrasting their old way of living and their new way of living. Verse 22, then reference your former way of life. You're to rid yourselves of the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you, were be, uh, you are to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, in verse 24, and to put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been cre- uh, created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So here's point number one. You were resurrected with Christ to new life, so walk in newness. He's saying, don't look back and live like you used to live. He says, walk in the newness that you have now in Jesus Christ. He says again, in the end there, he says, put on this new self. Take off the old self and put on the new self. You are resurrected with Christ to new life, so walk in this newness. Several weeks ago, I put a picture up of me, uh, I think, with a bass. I, I try to catch a bass every month, a largemouth bass. I failed in September, was so busy, didn't have a chance. But I remember the last bass I caught, I caught it out of uh, Turkey Creek, and I was muddy, sweaty, because I rode my bike there. And I told you uh, a couple weeks ago that my wife, though she loves me, she hates foul smells, right? Right, she hates foul smells. She nodded, yes, thank you. (laughs) This is the picture that Paul is talking about here. He says, Icky Soma, you have just come back. You are sweaty, you're muddy, you smell like fish guts. You smell like fish slime, you smell like sweat. You're putrid. So imagine any of you, you've done gardening or you've gone hunting You've gone out and worked out and you come back smelling and reeking. Your clothes are sweaty and nasty. And then you go in the shower. You get your favorite body wash, your loofah, and you loofah up and wash up. You shampoo and get your body all clean. Now imagine how foolish it would be to get all cleaned up, fresh, clean, clean hair, dry off. You take that same set of dirty clothes those sweaty shorts, that sweaty sweatshirt, that muddy pair of socks. You put that same outfit back on. He says, that's what you're doing. He says, if you go back to the old ways of living, that's what you're doing. Christ has made you brand spanking new. And we're to grow and walk in that because Christ has now cleansed us and washed us in his blood. And to put on your old ways of living, he says, is that's the picture. Is that vivid enough for y'all? That's the picture there to put on your old, smelly, muddy, nasty clothes, even though Christ has now cleansed you and washed you. It's much like this. Um, I've shared this before. Uh, I, I am a prison chaplain as well, and I've done prison ministry for over 25 years now. And there's a thing called the recidivism rate. Does anyone know what that means? The recidivism rate is the number of people, men and women, who are incarcerated, who get released and they end up committing a crime and going right back into prison. That's a recidivism rate. And TDCJ, the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, currently the rate is anywhere between 20 and 40%. And so this is where separation of church and state goes out the window. Because the TDCJ understands this. The TDCJ understands that if we're going to have men and women who are truly rehabilitated, truly changed, something has to change on the inside. Amen? 
We can have all the right programs, all the right classes, all the right training, but something has to change on the inside. And so my good friend, who's now home with the Lord, Carol Vance, introduced this program through Prison Fellowship called the Inner Change Program. And this is where Governor Bush and others, they didn't say, oh, separation of church and state. They said, oh, come on in, come on in. And because of the interchange program, men and women who are incarcerated come to Jesus Christ, get disciples, get discipled, and they change on the inside, and they've seen the recidivism rate drop because of that. Isn't that good news? And that's what Paul's arguing here. Paul is saying that you have been changed on the inside. And so he's saying, why do you go back in the prison of the way you used to live? But here's what he says in verses 25 through 32. Therefore, underline that word therefore. So he connects walking in this newness to these specific actions. He's comparing old ways of living and new ways of living. Therefore, ridding yourselves of falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor because you're parts of one another. In order to have unity in the church, there has to be truth speaking, speaking the truth. Verse 26, be angry yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. The one who steals must no longer steal, but rather he must obey, producing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with those who has a need, with the one who has a need, excuse me. Verse 29, let no unwholesome, the word unwholesome there literally means rotten fruit or rotten. Let no rotten word come out of your mouth but if there is any good word for edification, words that will build somebody up, build somebody up and encourage them in their faith, according to the need of the moment, uh, say that so that it will give grace to those who hear. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you're sealed for the day of redemption. Verse 31, all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander must be removed from you along with all malice. And finally, verse 32, be kind to one another, compassionate, Forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So here's point number two. Here's a contrast of our old and new life. And I've put this little chart together of our old and new life. The old self, the flesh, that part of us that tries to live independent of God is dead. But our new self, our spirit is now alive. So he says, you can speak lies, the old ways of doing things. You can speak truth. You can have sinful anger. You can have righteous anger. You can steal or you can work hard. You can have discouraging, rotten words that tear down, or you can have edifying words. You can have bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice, or you can have kind, compassionate, and you can give grace. You can build up. You can either tear down or build up. So he's contrasting in verses 25 through 32, old self versus new self. And this is how you can tell, how do I know if I'm walking in the flesh, and how do I know if I'm walking in the spirit? The list is right here. Simple as that. And if we are going to be the body or the family that God has envisioned as a church, we have to all commit to walking in this newness of life. And he says there in verse 30 that if we walk in the old ways, what we find is that we grieve the Holy Spirit. And for those of you who may think the Spirit is like a force, an impersonal force, you cannot grieve an impersonal force. The Holy Spirit is a person. So the Holy Spirit grieves when we walk in our old ways. So the contrast between the old self and the new self. And this is where I just want to land today. Like I mentioned at the top of the sermon, you may be introducing demonic activity into your life, into your marriage, and it may prevent intimacy with God because of this issue in verse 26. Four commands in 26 and 27. 
The first command is be angry. Be angry. How many of y'all have a problem obeying that command? Anybody have a problem obeying that command? I don't. I'll just be honest, right? Why do we get angry? Because God is an angry God. We're creating God's image. And the reason why is because God is a just God. Being created in God's image, we have an innate sense of justice. When, someone's, uh, when something wrong happens or something right happens, we have a sense of justice. When we experience wrong, when we see wrong, when we see sin, we see brokenness, we innately say, that's wrong, and we get angry. So here, Paul says, when you see brokenness and wrong and injustice, be angry, be angry. The things that makes God angry, you be angry at. But let me put this caveat in here, because I know for me, this is a point of growth for me. Not for you all, because you're so mature, but for me. <laughs> there are two perspectives in life as a believer, and we've just looked at this in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2. You can even look at it in Romans 4 and 5. Everything I have, everything I do is because of God's grace. Amen? Amen. By God's grace. None of us in here chose where we would be born. Amen? None of us chose how, where, the ethnicity, our background, our education, our gifts. None of us chose that. Amen? Did you choose the gifts that you have and the abilities you have? No. You didn't choose your looks. You didn't choose any of that. It was a gift of grace. Did anybody in this room, according to Ephesians 2 that we looked at two or three weeks ago, did anybody in here save themselves? Anybody save themselves, get right with God all on your own? Anybody? What does the text say? It's by grace. When you recognize that everything that you have, everything that you are, if you're married today, if you are married today, if you have kids today, whether you have an amazing marriage or a struggling marriage, amazing kids or messed up kids, I don't know. <laughs> Your kids are struggling. All this is by God's grace, by God's grace. If you think you're married today because you're some charismatic, super amazing person, even that is a gift from God, amen? That's what Ecclesiastes says, that your family, that your house, that your marriage is a gift from God. It's all by grace. That's one mindset you can have. The other mindset you can have is this. Everything I have, I deserve. I've earned it. I, I've, I'm entitled to it. It's all mine. I work for this. I have this. My kids are amazing because I'm so amazing. My marriage is amazing because I'm amazing. The church I pastor is amazing because I'm amazing. It's easy to think it's all because of me and I deserve it and I'm the one that worked for it. And this is what happens. When you have that kind of mindset, anytime someone tramples on your little kingdom, you're gonna get upset. Amen? Is it just me that feels that way? Anytime someone offends you, says something, whatever, that messes up your little perfect world that you feel like you deserve, that you work for, you got, you're gonna get angry. But you know what? Who's almost impossible to make angry? That person who realizes everything I am, everything I have is by God's grace. You trample on that, this is a gift from God. You talk about me, this is, this is a gift from God. Everything I have, BGGA, by God's grace alone. So again, he says the first command, be angry, be angry. But then here's the second part of the command. 
yet do not sin. Yet do not sin. Now, I struggle with that. Anybody else struggle with that? The first part, be angry. Yes, God, yes, I got it. Nailed it. Nailed it. And yet do not sin. Oh, gosh. God, come on now. I deserved it. I earned it. They're trampling on my kingdom. They're talking about me. And yet do not sin. Slow to speak. Slow to anger. Quick to hear. So he says, don't let that anger that you have now turn into, because of your selfishness and brokenness and my kingdom, become sin. Why do I say that? Look at verse 31. Here's a picture of what it looks like. All bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander must be removed from you along with all malice. All of those things are things that we do sinfully because we're like, I'm in pain, I'm hurting. And we know that cliche, hurt people, hurt people. I'm gonna hurt somebody. And we transfer that. So he says, be angry. God, I got no problem with that, yet do not sin. Okay, God, I have an issue with that. All bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander must be removed from you along with all malice. That word bitterness means deep-seated anger because you've kept the record. You've kept the record of how people have hurt you. He says this, third command, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. What he means by that is when you get angry, you see something wrong happen in the world, or something is wrong, you are wronged. He says, process that. Process that quickly. Don't sweep it under the rug. Passively say, oh, you didn't upset me. You sweep it under the rug. But you process it. What do we do in processing it? You absorb the pain. That's the essence of forgiveness. The essence of forgiveness is absorbing the pain rather than transferring the pain or trying to pay back and give it to somebody else. Amen? Let me say this to all the married couples in here and the couples who are thinking about getting married. Um, if you and your wife, if you and your husband, if you and your spouse are at odds with one another, work it out. My wife and I have literally taken this verse to heart. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. And many times we have been up till two, three, four in the morning talking it out, working it out, asking for forgiveness, confessing sin, repenting. We've done that. So my encouragement to you as husbands and wives is to do that. I'll also encourage you if you're single here today or married, in community, in community, with brothers and sisters in Christ, if someone does something to offend you, don't just sweep under the rug, ignore it, work it out, talk it out. I think, uh, I can't remember which scholar said this, the essence of marriage is a consistent pattern of repentance, confession, and forgiveness. Now I say that's the essence of any healthy church. Any healthy church in community, the essence of a relationship with the body of Christ is continual repentance, confession, and forgiveness. If you're gonna be reconciled, you have to have the offender who repents and confesses and the one who's been offended to say, I forgive you. But here's the thing that you need to understand about forgiveness. Even if the person who's offended you and hurt you has never, ever, ever asked for forgiveness, never confessed what they've done, you, my friend, brothers and sisters, need to uh, forgive them. And then he says this in verse 27. Last command, and do not give the devil an opportunity. I looked at all these conservative commentaries as I was studying this, conservative evangelical Christian commentaries. Only one of them 
address this verse right here. Only one. And so easy to skip over and read by, read it very quickly. He says, if you're angry, be angry. That's a command. Yet do not sin. But you violate that and you begin sinning. And then you don't talk it out and work it out and try to reconcile and forgive that person. He says, what you've now done, and that word, that opportunity, means this, a place. A place to do work. That's what it means, an opportunity to do work. It'd be like this, if you go to work tomorrow and you find out that your job has given you an intern and the intern says, hey, I'm your intern, but I need some space to do some work. And you say, oh, there's a little corner in my office. I'll set up a desk for you, a little computer. You can work in that corner. You have given them space to do work. That's what happens when you let the sun go down on your, in, in, uh, on your anger. What you do is you allow demonic activity, not possession, but oppression to enter into your life, into your marriage, into your community group, into your church, into any relationships, and the devil now has a field day because the body of Christ is to be united and harmonious, as Ryan talked about last week, to maintain the unity of the spirit, and it gives the devil great pleasure to see God's people divided. So here's my last point, verse 32. And I'm gonna address a few things about forgiveness. Be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving each other, underline this, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. What does that phrase, just as, sound familiar to? Anybody just as? Matthew 6, 12, the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts just as we forgive our debtors. Because we're created in God's image, we have an innate sense of justice. We know that whenever we wrong somebody, we say to ourselves, I owe them an apology. You owe them something. And whenever somebody hurts you, you feel like they owe you something. So there's an innate sense of indebtedness. And that's why Jesus says, Forgive us our debts, how we've offended you, God, just as we forgive our debtors. So here's point number three. Christ is our standard and source for forgiveness. Jesus Christ is our standard and source for forgiveness. That's why, if I can implore you, on my last Sunday, keep a radical focus on Jesus because Jesus is the standard of forgiveness. But he is also the source. You cannot forgive on your own. Forgiving people is a decision of the will. You choose whether you're going to obey God or not. You choose and say, God, empowered by your spirit, because I don't want to grieve the spirit. I want to have bitterness and anger and clamor and malice and slander. That's my natural fleshly reaction. But God, I don't want to give the devil an opportunity. I don't want to give the devil an opportunity. I don't want to have him get up all in the mix. So God, I'm choosing to forgive this person. And forgiveness is a process. Amen, y'all know that? I don't know about you all, but I struggle with forgiveness. I forgive the person on day one. Three months later, a memory pops up. I remember something and I get that anger again. I have to forgive again. I have to choose to forgive them again, asking God to take the pain away. You absorb the pain of offense. Now let me say this. 
Forgiveness is not foolishness. Forgiveness is not foolishness. I've heard this many times from women who've been victims of domestic violence. If I forgive my husband, does that mean I go running back to his arms? I say, absolutely not. You forgive him because forgiveness is the only prison that locks and unlocks from the inside. You've just basically trapped yourself. So you forgive him to release yourself, but that does not mean you go running back because that would be foolish. If you've got somebody that you've told a deep, dark, intimate secret to, confess something to and just say, here's what's going on with me, then you find out that person has now blabbed it to everybody and shared it with everybody. Forgive that person for sure, forgive them. But I would caution you on sharing deep, intimate things with that person again. Amen? Because again, when you forgive, you absorb the pain. So that means you can now set boundaries. You can say, you know what? I've absorbed pain. I've forgiven this person. But I'm not a glutton for punishment. I'm like, keep hitting me. Keep being, you know, we're not going to do that. That doesn't mean also this. If you have been hurt or offended by somebody, and it's of the criminal element, that doesn't mean just because you forgive them, you don't still press charges or send it to the district attorney or call the police. Amen? Come on, y'all. Amen? Amen? You've heard this before, uh, the church I came from. We had a worship leader who was embezzling money, embezzled almost $300,000. As a church, we forgave him. We forgave him. But we still handed everything over. He would not repent. He was disciplined by the church. He's now on probation. He went to jail for a couple days. So forgiveness doesn't mean holding people accountable, stop doing that, or, or uh, uh, calling the police if need be. It doesn't mean you run back in the arms of those who abuse you. Doesn't mean that. Forgiveness is letting the offense go from the offender. Let me illustrate that with this. Uh, I'll call my camera up. Steve and George, come on up here. Please, uh, and Stan, let me call Stan up here as well. I just saw, he was like, don't call me up here, please. <laughs> All right, stand right here, George. You face this way. Stan, you go over here and face this way. Yep, thank you. Steve here is everyone in this worship center today, worship service today. Is this you? Steve has been abandoned by George. He was gonna go, I don't know, something, fishing with him, and he didn't go. So hold this offense against George. Hold against his back. Steve shared something in confidence with Stan, and Stan broke confidentiality. So hold that against Stan. Hold it against his back. All right? Now, George, pretend like you're eating a bowl of uh, Rice Krispies or something. And Stan, pretend like you're fishing or something, whatever. Good, 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 good. This is the essence of unforgiveness. Because we have now, Steve is so busy trying to control, trying to have his own sense of justice by holding these offenses against these brothers. But you notice these guys have moved on with their lives. They don't even care. They don't even perhaps even know that they've hurt him. But this is what happens. This is what happens whenever we do this. Because if you look at Matthew 6, 12, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who trespass against us or have debt against us. Verse 14 and 15 says this, if you forgive those who offend you, your God in heaven will forgive you as well. But if you do not forgive, then your Father in heaven doesn't forgive you. 
And then you're like, oh, hold on a second, hold on a second. Doesn't the Bible say the moment we put our faith in Jesus, we're forgiven for all our sins, past, present, and future? Doesn't the Bible say that? Amen? That's what my Bible says. So how does verse 15 of Matthew 6 say, the Father doesn't forgive you? It's in a relational sense, a relational sense. So now there's a barrier in your, your relationship with God the Father and with Jesus Christ. So now here's Steve. Are you getting tired now? I'm getting tired. Right, he's getting tired. <laughs> because again, unforgiveness is the only prison that locks and unlocks from the inside. No one keeps you there. You keep yourself there. And so now this. This is only a dollar bill. Sorry, that's all I had. But imagine this is like $100. And you've been praying for just a need to be met. And I said, I'm Jesus. I know Jesus was not an Asian man. I know that. He's Jewish. <laughs> Steve, I want to bless you. I want to bless you. While still holding on to them, the offenses against them. Here, receive it now, Steve. Receive it. Come on, just take it. No. You got to hold on to both of those still. <laughs> So not just the, the material things that we miss out on, but now here's Jesus Christ, and you've been crying out because you're hurting in your pain, and then Jesus says, all right, embrace me. Intimacy with Jesus. Come on, give me a hug. While still holding on that sin offense. Can't do it. You can't let go. So that's what happens when we choose to not forgive, and we hold the offense against the offender. It messes up our relationship with Jesus Christ. He can't give to us what he wants to give us. We cannot be intimate with them because he says in 6, 14, and 15, if you forgive, I'll forgive you. But if you don't forgive, I won't forgive you. This unforgiveness becomes a block in our intimacy with God. Are y'all with me? So Jesus Christ is both our standard, total forgiveness, but also the source for forgiveness as well. So finally, I say, Steve, finally, let's say you let go. And now you can embrace Jesus. All right. Thank you all. Thank you. Man, I want a hug from Jesus. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Colossians 3.13 says the same thing Colossians 3.13 says again we forgive one another just as God and Christ has forgiven us Colossians 3.13 Paul repeats himself so Christ is our standard and source for forgiveness in your marriage the process, confess, repent, confess, forgive. If you don't want the devil and his demons to get up in your marriage and in all the mix, repent, confess, forgive. In your relationships, in community group, and in this church, if you don't want the devil to get up in the mix, demonic, divisive, destructive activity come in there. He says the same thing. You repent, confess, and forgive. I'll close with this verse again. Be kind to one another, verse 32 compassionate, forgiving each other. And that word forgiving, if you, if you break down the word forgive, it means to give before, forgive. Even if someone has not yet asked for forgiveness, not confessed it, and it may be this. I had a question recently. What happens if the person who hurt me and offended me is dead? They're in the grave. There'll never be a chance for them to ask for forgiveness. You still Forgive, because Christ is our standard and our source. And that word forgive, forgiving each other, verse 32, just as God in Christ also forgiven you, the word is not literally forgive. The word is literally grace. It's the word grace. So this is how it could read. Gracing each other, just as God in Christ has graced you. 
Just as God has given you unmerited favor, just as he's gifted you, everything that you are, everything that you have, he has graced you. You can have a life perspective of one of grace or deserved, entitled. And he says, grace, you've been graced. And because you've been graced, now what we do is we now grace others. We grace others. You've been forgiven, so now forgive. How many of you all know the director, producer by the name of J.J. Abrams? Anybody know J.J. Abrams? All the TV shows he's done and all the latest Star Wars movies he's directed and produced. Well, J.J. Abrams, his mentor was Steven Spielberg. Very interesting story here. J.J. Abrams was a young, nobody even knew who he was, ambitious director, producer, filmmaker. And when he was a young man, I think he was like 17 years old, Steven Spielberg took him under his wings. Now, this is Steven Spielberg, multiple award winner, E.T., Jurassic Park. I think back then they were still like the number one and two like blockbusters of all time. Took this young kid under his wings and mentored him. But here's the reason why. Steven Spielberg would grace J.J. Abrams. Not many people know this. is because when Steven Spielberg was 20 years old, before Jurassic Park, before Star Trek, before E.T., before any of those things, Sid Sheinberg, who at the time was the bigwig at MCA Universal Studios, eventually went on to become the CEO of MCA and Universal Studios, found a young 20-year-old Steven Spielberg. Nobody knew who he was. Took him under his wing, mentored him, and signed him to a seven-year filmmaking contract. That period of seven years was known as Scheinberg's Folly because many people said, why would you sign this 20-year-old kid who's not done anything? Why would you mentor him? This is a waste of time. Only to find a number of years later, a number of years later, E.T., box office hit, Jurassic Park and all these other hits he's had. And so the reason why Steven Spielberg has graced J.J. Abrams is because he was graced by somebody else. The only reason why I'm gracing you is because somebody greater, the CEO of MCA Universal Studios, graced me. I didn't deserve it. He graced me. And because of that, I am now gracing you. And friends, the reason why we forgive, on top of all the benefits of you releasing yourself from your own prison, of not having freedom and liberty, and not having demonic activity, is this. It's an understanding of the gospel of grace. Jesus Christ absorbed all the pain on the cross. He took all of our sin on him. He experienced a separation from the Father so that you and I wouldn't have to. He experienced the pain. He took the pain and he graced us. And because he's graced us, Paul simply wraps up by saying, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Let's pray. God, perhaps there's some here today who have unknowingly 
invited demonic activity into their lives, into their walk with you, into their families and marriages, into their community group, into this church. So God, we do pray now. Be angry, yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and do not give the devil a foothold. Forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. God, I pray now for each person here under the sound of my voice. If there's anyone here right now, there's someone they need to forgive. They've been abandoned, maybe an ex-spouse, maybe a child, a coworker, maybe a former member of Bayou City Fellowship. God, would you place the name of that person right now on their hearts and minds and what they did? Painful as that memory is. And God, it's so easy to remember all the ways that people have hurt us. And God, I think of Matthew 7, the speck in the log. It's easy to see the speck in others' eyes, how people have hurt us and miss the log that's in ours. So God, if we have hurt others, even though we may deny it, justify it, excuse it, God, would you humble us to go to that person to repent and to confess and ask for forgiveness, God? So God, I pray again for everyone here this morning. Who do we need to forgive? What do we need to forgive them for? What do we need to release to take off them? Empowered by you. Strengthened by you to do that today, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, a decade from now. And God, who do we need to confess an offense to? Is there a brother or sister that we've offended, that we've hurt, that we may need to go to and just simply ask, is there something I've done to offend you? Repent, confess, and ask for forgiveness. God, you're a great reconciling God. You reconciled enemies, sinners, rebels back to you. So God, would you reconcile your people so that you'd be pleased, so that we would experience the unity and the harmony that you have given for the blueprint of your church, not just by UCU Fellowship, but the church universal, that we would genuinely be brothers and sisters in Christ, one spirit, one father, one baptism. Because we forgive, repent, and confess. God, if there's anyone here today who's yet to put their faith in Christ, who does not know this forgiveness for all sins, past, present, and future, Master, I pray today would be the day they place their faith in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, to know that they're forgiven, to have a relationship with you, and to now be a part of the family of God, the body of Christ. And we ask this all in his name and all God's people said, amen. I'm asking prayer team come on my left and right. If you need prayer, the prayer team would love to pray for you. If you are burdened and you sense, you know what, there is a person I need to forgive. I need to let it go and release it but I'm struggling and you need prayer for that. If there is someone that you know that you've offended, that you may say, I need to confess this offense to set up a time, a meeting with them. You need prayer. This is your time to receive prayer.
Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope that you feel encouraged. To stay up to date with our current sermon series, you can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you would like to find more ways to get involved with the Bayou City family, visit us online at bayoucityfellowship.com or download the Bayou City Fellowship Spring Branch app to find community in the body of Christ.